0: Hi, this is Stephanie Fay and this is season two. Thanks for joining. In the last episode we talked about the idea of systems thinking and looking at things from a wider perspective to see how multiple components work together to create something bigger and more complex and more intelligent than the individual components could do by themselves which is the idea of emergence. And so one of the systems we'll focus on today is the brain and in particular a feature of the brain which is that it really distorts a lot of the present and the data that we're getting in and this has to do with how all of these different systems are working together. And we'll be looking at this feature of the brain by looking at how the brain's main function is to predict and therefore make assumptions and generalizations. And this leads us to filter almost everything that we interact with through predictive models from our past. So we're going to explore how that affects our relationships and our behaviors and even our emotional well-being. So thanks for joining me. So when I talk about the brain, I'm talking about the meat inside your skull. The meat inside your skull is a system, but it's within a larger system, which is your body. And that body includes many other subsystems like the sensory receptors and autonomic nervous system, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's really a brain body system. And it's very hard to isolate the brain as though it does things by itself because it doesn't. And another feature of the brain-body system is that it is extremely dependent on its environment in order to build itself. So the brain-body system would deteriorate or not really even function without some type of environment and stimulus. And by environment, I mean anything that gets perceived by the cells. So this can be the air molecules, frequencies, vibrations physical objects, obviously people and other living beings, but also things that are not sensed by our usual senses like that. So this includes things like concepts or ideas or stories, including the concept of time. These are all part of the reality, the environment that the brain body system is interacting with. And in some ways we could say that there are third dimensional aspects of the environment. So three dimensional things like tangible material things we see, hear, feel, taste, and smell, but they're also fourth dimensional dimensional concepts so like time and even in that sense because of time there are stories and ideas that get presented to us through communication and third dimensional aspects of our environment so a story something very intangible and abstract can get conveyed through squiggles and lines on a page or through this sophisticated grunting of our language or we see the hands on the clock all of those things convey something more abstract and intangible like the dimension of ideas and concepts and stories. Those get conveyed in that three-dimensional space. But all of those things together, including the meat inside the skull and the body, are part of what I call the mind-brain-body system. So all the interactions and the relationships and the stories and ideas, that's also part of the mind system and the entire mind-brain-body system. So the body and brain are more like the hardware or architecture, and the mind aspect is more about the software, the relationships, the ideas, etc. cetera. So let's look at the mind-brain-body system. And like I mentioned in the first episode, it's important when studying systems to know their function. And a huge function of the mind-brain-body system is to predict things. So it's important for the system to predict because this increases its chances of survival and it increases the chances of using resources more efficiently. And using energy and resources efficiently allows for this system, the mind-brain-body system, to grow and learn and evolve as a future orientation, so to project itself into the future, not just about now and restoration and survival, but actually projecting into the future. So if this system can predict a danger ahead of time, it can take steps to avoid the danger, which lowers the cost of the mind-brain-body system to need resources to repair itself. And getting good at predicting rewards and good things is also how the mind, brain, body becomes more efficient with its energy and resources. Because knowing how to predict these things also helps it have that orientation towards the future for growth and stuff like that. And maintain homeostasis. So if it knows where all the good stuff is that it likes and gives it rewards, that's also a very important predictive ability. So one way to conserve energy and resources the way the brain body system likes to do is to have some form of automation or automatic behavior. And it does this by building models of the world, by taking snippets of information and then creating a model that predicts lots of other stuff without needing to have all the information of everything. It would be way less efficient to have to deal with every single thing that comes across our path and have to analyze all of it in order to understand it. So our brain-body system would rather be conservative and just kind of make assumptions about a lot of things so it doesn't have to deal with everything. And in a way, this is actually how babies are not really that efficient in the beginning because they are witnessing everything for the first time. So we see them in this state of wonder and fascination about everything. They look at a piece of garbage and they're fascinated and they're equally fascinated by that piece of garbage as they are by the butterfly or the leaf or the running water or whatever it is that comes across because they don't yet have evaluations and all that many associations or memories with each thing. So they're really examining each thing and taking in all of that data. And through that process, the brain is... Is making models and assumptions and predictions and then what we see is as we get older and older and each day passes we become less fascinated and less in wonder of everything around us because the brain has already made plenty of assumptions and decided basically how to sort everything into one of three categories it's harmful so avoid it it's a danger it's beneficial it's a reward so let's go get it Or eh, it doesn't really matter, it's relevant. We've already dealt with it before and it doesn't really do anything for us. So we can see that the way that our brain starts to model and create these assumptions and predictions is very, very useful. It makes us more efficient because otherwise we would be walking around like young infants all the time, just staring in fascination at everything around us, looking at a chair or looking at this pencil or looking at my computer. And although that sounds really cool, and many of us try to get to a state like that through other means, which we're not going to get into right now, and we can achieve that state actually through different kind of mindfulness meditation practices, and it's a very cool place to be, it isn't efficient in terms of us trying to become more complex and intelligent. Because, for example, if I stared in fascination at this pencil and just kept doing that, I would probably not end up being able to take notes to create a podcast because. I wouldn't actually even have a model to work with as to how to use the pen or pencil to write these notes. (laughs) So there is pros, there are pros and cons to this modeling, predictive modeling kind of system that the mind brain body uses. So what we see is as we get older and older, we have more associations of everything, which means we get kind of better at predicting things. But it also means that our mind, brain, body system is first of all, filtering a lot of things through our past and making a lot of assumptions about everything now based on our past experiences. And it can even mean that we become a bit disengaged from our senses and new possibilities because the data that's coming in is actually in a way just getting sorted by the brain into how it fits with its existing model. So we may not even, our mind, brain, body system might not even attempt to explore or examine a lot of things in our environment because it's already made assumptions about it. So we don't often see things as they actually are in this moment. As you walk by a tree or a bush, many times we just brush right past it because it doesn't offer us anything. Our our mind, brain, body system has already made an assumption about it being irrelevant to us. So we walk right by it. But what's happening is we are becoming somewhat disengaged from our senses. And what I'll go through at the end of the episode is an exercise we can do where we can actually work out features of our brain to help us become a bit more engaged with the world and able to actually interact with the data that is live in front of us now, which can help us just have new ideas about life and reality and things that we're working with in even our relationships and and things like that. So the other piece of why it's important for us to understand that we have these predictive models is that it really influences our relationships and how we interact with people. You often are not really seeing people as they actually are. You're seeing them through your model or paradigm, like I mentioned in episode one, that's built from your history. I will not see the person in front of us the same way you see that person in front of us. We literally will not experience the same reality. Of anything, honestly. And I went into that in in season one. But let's just take a person in front of us. My senses are going to filter how I perceive that person based on all of the different associations I have from my past experiences. And so will you. And the give and take that happens is that person will also now interact with me and react to me, behave with me in a completely different way than they do with you. And so what we can see is that none of us are actually dealing with the same people ever. And a lot of assumptions that we make about a person is really just how that person is with us. We only know that person in the presence of us. We can't know them in any other way. So I think that's really important for us to be thinking about. And a lot of your predictive relation, your, sorry, your predictive models of relationships all started with the very beginning of you and your first caregivers and how they reacted and responded to you how they reacted to your cries and your giggles and your demands and your needs. And that started a predictive modeling process for you. You started to figure out how to predict human behavior based on the very small sampling of data you got from one to maybe three or four people probably tops over and over again regularly in your life from your first days onward for the first few years. So, all of the statistics and assumptions and computations that your brain is using now was created back then and was created based on the stress levels and the maturity levels of your caregivers and how they were to you and how they were able to respond to you. So, if they had a very narrow view of the world and how what success meant or how behavior should be and how kids should behave, that was all projected onto you and created a sense of your identity and your worth and what your behavior meant, whether it was good or bad. All of that was created very, very early on within you and in your brain. And your brain has held on to that model until now. It continues to do that. It's very hard for us to erase anything from our past, but it is possible to allow it to evolve and expand. So we'll go a little bit more into that. And so from those early years and that model that you created and your brain created, you started to interact with more people. But what happened was because that model from your earliest years was so powerful, because it was at a time where your brain was expanding a lot and pruning away and just creating a lot of networks, the new people that keep coming into your life from that, from those years onward, are just in a way filtered still through your brain's predictive model. So it just tries to attempt to fit each new person in into that model by taking little snippets of data like a frown or a smile or a neutral face or tone of voice and associating it with something from your past, something you had already experienced. So if there was a lot of anger or violence or punishment or even just aloofness and distance and emotional disconnectedness even around you when you were young, which can happen in a lot of different forms mom or dad or caregiver being stressed, maybe not there because they're working a lot. Maybe other siblings came into the picture and so all of a sudden there was a lot more distance between you and one of the caregivers. There's so many different variations of how this would happen. But if there, whatever that was that existed for you when you were young, your brain has made a lot of associations. So a frown from a person later on in your life might be associated for you with a much more harmful evaluation. Then a frown would for somebody who had maybe just a lot more of a nurturing environment or a lot more peaceful, gentle, and maybe very playful experiences in their earliest years. And in line with that, one person might associate a smile with even, for example, like an opportunity to ask for what they need, because maybe in their childhood, smiles were rare. And so if there was maybe a lot of just coldness or anger, As soon as there was a smile, it was like, oh, there's my opportunity to express something that I need. But another possibility is that smiles were plentiful and associated with bonding and playtime. So just a smile can trigger a huge rush of neurochemicals for one person that are very different than they are for another person. And so can a frown and so can a neutral face. So it's helpful for us to be aware that we have all these predictive models running in the background and that they're sorting our current experiences based more often on the past than what the data in the present moment is actually presenting. And this can help us understand why we actually misperceive a lot of interactions and stuff happening in our world and especially in our relationships. So to be more adaptive, we can allow our mind-brain-body to experience more live data as it is in this moment now in its most evolved state. So that our mind, brain, body can actually choose to approach it and examine it more closely from its maturity level now rather than the models it built when we were little. And this can help us be much more sophisticated and evolved and complex to to give us access to those networks as we get older so that we can respond to people and relationships and situations with our mature adult models rather than childhood ones that we're based a lot more on instant gratification when we're younger, rather than thinking about long-term or multiple possibilities. So how do we do this? Well, the first key is always awareness. So just the fact that you, even now, may have had some new spark of awareness in this moment, as you listen to this episode, is already activation of new circuitry. So even if you understood the ideas that I'm talking about now, even if you understood them before, like for example, you probably already had the idea that your childhood played a role in how you react to things now. But just the fact that you're hearing it again from your most evolved neural circuitry as it is now in this moment means that your brain is receiving my words as a a new kind of stimulus that can activate even more evolved and complex networks in your brain right now and now again and again as I keep saying words and your circuitry keeps firing. So there will be new complexity and intelligence that emerges just from having a moment of awareness about something like this in your present moment now. And there are two other ways that having this awareness can help us get to a place where we can use our most evolved brain-body networks to experience people in the world instead of always over-labeling and over-filtering people and situations from our childhood models. So the first thing is to experience something familiar in a new way. And I actually explained some of this in one of my YouTube videos about how to get out of your head. So we can do this by adjusting some of our motor movements. And this can help us experience the world and experience how stimulus enters our senses in new ways. So there's three particular motor movements that if we slow them down, It helps your entire body adjust and fire up new circuitry to get you to experience something in a new way. So these three motor movements are your entire body and how it moves. The pace, the movement of your head, and the movement of your eyes. You can try this now as you listen to the podcast or after the podcast. Pick a short distance of walking from one location to another. And this can be from, let's say, your bedroom to your bathroom. It can be down a block of sidewalk, from your office to the bathroom or to the elevator, etc. And you only need to do this for about 10 to 15 seconds. So the first modification is to slow down. Slow down your walking. Just notice how me slowing down how I'm speaking can help you experience these words in a new way. So as you walk that short distance, just slow down. And it's something we don't do very often. We don't purposely slow down. It requires a lot of conscious awareness of the present moment and for that whole duration of 10 to 15 seconds to slow down that whole time. And that makes it less automated and actually activates a little bit more of your prefrontal cortex because it requires a little bit of attention. So the second modification is to turn your head to the side as you are walking. We are very used to looking forward and also slightly down, especially as we're looking at our screens, but even when we're lost in thought. So just by adjusting the position of our head as we walk, we're doing something very novel and unfamiliar. And this gets our mind, brain, body to just notice things in a new way because it's a completely different perspective than what we're used to. So how the stimulus is entering our eyes and the angles of all that is going to alert our mind, brain, body system to pay more attention because it's new, it's novel in how it's getting presented. So it will just already start to make us feel a little bit more alert and engaged. And then the third, so as you're walking, you turn your head and you're slowing everything down. And then the third modification is now for your eye gaze. So our eyes are moving constantly. We would not actually be able to see anything if our eyes were not moving in constant motion, which we don't tend to really know that we're doing. And they're darting around all the time. So for these 10 to 15 seconds, as you slow down your walking, you turn your head to the side. And now you're going to just notice your eye movement and try to slow down the speed that it's, it's darting from one thing to the next. So let it actually land on something. So if you're outside, it could be a leaf, a little droplet of water on the leaf, uh, a bug that's there, a spider web, the bark of a tree. If you're inside, it could be the texture of the paint or the wallpaper, a door frame, something like that. If you're turning to the side, allow your eyes to just land and gaze at something for a few moments. And you might look a little bit up or down and let it land on another thing as you walk very slowly. So what this exercise does is it works out some circuitry that is less just filtering everything through your pre-existing thoughts. So it can feel really refreshing to do this from time to time. And that's been my experience. And people who've tried this have said it has helped them get out of their head and come back into the moment where we're really interacting with live data. And what this can do is it can actually help us in our relationships and our daily lives because we get to have a bit more control over these automated motor movements of where our eyes are going, how we're moving, the pace of everything. And it gives us more ability to choose whether we engage with live data right now or we go back into lost in our thoughts. So this can help us also in our relationships. For example, when we really stay present with a person, we project out different micro signals of presence that allows them to feel really safe with us because it's a serve and return kind of dynamic. And so having more choice over whether we stay engaged when we're interacting with someone allows us, first of all, to give them a feeling of safety that allows their guard to come down, which is now going to allow them to give us more signals of being present with us, which is going to allow for just more information to come out because we're less performing and we're less vigilant and we're less defensive with each other because we're really being truly present The other thing too is it's just fun. So if you try this for 10 to 15 seconds, just for a little bit, you'll see that it really can make you feel more awake and it can actually increase your sense of wonder and fascination that I was talking about before. So I highly recommend it. I do it myself very regularly. As soon as I can tell that I'm trapped in my thinking I just turn my head to the side and I look at the wall or whatever is next to me and I allow my eyes to to gaze and land on those things and it just brings me right back into the moment and I often from there have a just a new idea a new perspective of whatever it was that I had been thinking about instead of a very repetitive way of thinking. But the second way to use our more evolved networks and interact with live data without filtering it and overgeneralizing it from the past is to experience unfamiliar things. So this gives your mind, brain, body a chance to be more exposed to new data that allows it to just add all of this data to its predictive modeling. So the more data it has, the, the newer kinds of formulas it can create. And it might have to actually abandon old ideas and beliefs because new data has presented itself. So it's a really great way to evolve your brain networks. So if you experience unfamiliar things with the maturity of your neural circuitry as it is now, as opposed to when it was younger, you have a chance of experiencing new things in a way that is integrating all your past experiences, but with a a newness to it because it's unfamiliar now, if that makes sense. So you can travel to a new place or just a new community within your city Interact with people who are very different from what you grew up around, especially if their skin color is different or their clothing or their language or their music. So even though we're open as children, we're also very influenced by the people around us. And if we're around very similar things over and over and over again, Our brain does tend to sort unfamiliar things into the possibility of threat because that's just a a more statistically safe way for our mind, brain, body system to sort the world. If it's not familiar, let's play it safe and say that it's probably best to avoid it because we don't know yet. So just know that that is how our brain body system works generally. So if we can allow this new awareness we have of trying to evolve our brain networks to allow us to experience these unfamiliar things and have the openness and maturity to allow it to be unfamiliar and even if we feel nervous about it, to just let it enter our senses and that can help us get out of the old modeling that we have and not overgeneralize it right away. So it's not our fault that we do this, our worlds are, are really small when we're little and we we just have a small sample of data to work with. So we can often start having a very simplistic way of looking at the world that starts from the people that were around when we're little. If they have a very good versus bad way of looking at people and they sort the world through good and bad, us versus them, we often get very influenced by that. So we have a very simplistic way of doing that later on in life, whether we're aware of it or not. But intelligence itself, the nature of intelligence, as it evolves, it becomes more fine-grained. And it allows for more data to come in and it becomes less simplistic like that. So if you were in a way operating from a good versus bad or us versus them type of thinking, then it means that you don't have a lot of cognitive flexibility. And intelligence needs that kind of flexibility for it to become more complex. So the more you allow yourself to have new experiences and new data coming in, and you allow for there to be this kind of complexity in your world and diversity of your world, you are just allowing the very natural intelligence of your brain to evolve and become more complex. And that can help us get more innovative and have new ideas of how to work with all kinds of relationships. So in summary, if we want to get better at innovating and coming up with new ideas and also improving our relationships. It's really helpful for us to become more flexible in our thinking. And one way we can do this is to look at our own behavior and our brain from a wider angle, which we can do by thinking about it as a system and that our mind, brain, body is interacting with the systems of our families and our past and interacting also with the system of our culture and society and all the programming that gets involved there. So looking at it from this type of systems type of perspective gives us more possibilities to explore how we can find new ways to be. Instead of reducing everything down to one brain and one person, expand out that perspective to see all the different ways that the different systems that your parents were a part of and the programming they received because of their generation and the things going on in the world for them, like world wars and things like that. How all of those systems and cultures really influenced their thinking, which then also influenced your thinking and your models and paradigms of the world. Things like how people should behave and what behavior is and, and all that kind of stuff. But the other aspect to be thinking about is this idea of dynamics and how things change over time. So by looking at dynamics and systems dynamics, we can see that some of the things of our from our past aren't necessarily serving us now. So how we understood behavior as children may not be serving us in our relationships now and how we're reacting to people. And we can actually just expand our perception by just being aware of the fact that much of our thinking is based on these childhood models. And then finally, we can become more flexible in this modeling of the world by experiencing familiar things in new ways, which we can do by just having more awareness of how automatic a lot of our body movements are and how we look at the world. But we can also experience unfamiliar things so that they can become more understood by us and our brain has just more data to work with that just expands its ability to be flexible and have more possibilities of things. So those are some ideas of how we can use this paradigm of systems thinking and systems dynamics to navigate our world in new ways. And I hope you found some of that helpful. And if you want to have more interactive exercises like that and deeper discussions, I hope you'll be able to join me for one of my upcoming masterclasses. So I limit the number of people that come to those because I want to create a sense of community while we're online together. So if you listen to this entire podcast and liked it, you probably would have a lot of fun interacting with us. So I hope you'll check it out. And you can do that at stephaniefay.com and click on masterclass. Thanks for joining me.